Tired Hand by Melissa Skoroda. An excerpt. You hire me a what, Marlowe? Smith asked behind the clenched teeth. Marlowe, Joey said, as if talking to a five-year-old. It's a birthday present. You need to cut loose. You need a break. Marlowe stared at her best friend, the administrative assistant, wondering if she'd taken to drinking in the middle of the afternoon. Joey stood before her, a red spandex excuse of a dress in her hands, a calm look on her perfect face. Yep, she'd been hidden in the bottle. A break? A break doesn't go, does not include hiring a gigolo for the night. With an inspirited high sigh, Joey tossed the dress on the bed. Listen, hun. You've been working like crazy the last few months. Problems with the company. Well, you need to get laid. Yeah, I know, but a gigolo? Josepha Venom. A gigolo? Listen, you haven't dated anyone since Vic. You need this, and Clarice owes me. Only Joey would have a childhood friend who became the owner of escort service. Marlowe didn't even want to contemplate what favour Clarice owed her. There's no way on earth this is going to happen, Joey. Marlo, no, I'm not that type of woman. It needs... Joey placed her hand on her hip and raised an eyebrow. Okay, I'm not the type who wants a gigolo. Joey snorted, but kept her mouth shut. Now, how much time do we have? Joey's eyes widened. I thought you said you didn't want to go. I didn't want a gigolo, but if we're going to the club and, and, and hiring him... I can't see him sit there all night and wondering what, what happened. Marlowe, no, we're going. I'm going to stand there while you explain. You're the one who hired him. I didn't desire to avail myself to his services for the evening. He still couldn't believe Joey pulled this. When we were supposed to meet him, ten, it was supposed to be you, not both of us. Marlowe glanced at the watch. She had less than an hour. You'd never use the panic. And he'd meet the man, tell him about what happened. I'll go him to take a quick shower. I feel funky. She grabbed her toiletry bag. Don't try anything when I'm gone. She fell from the shower ten minutes later. A grime a two-hour car drive trip after a long day at work washed away. Immediately, she realised her clothes were no longer sitting on the counter where she had placed them. She shrugged it off, thinking Joey must have grabbed them. Up. How to hurry, drushing her Drawing her hair, she wrapped the towel round her body and walked out the door, an empty bedroom. Joey? Silence. Joey? An uneasiness crept in her stomach, showing the contents. Joey? Still nothing. She walked into the living room and worry increased when she found it empty as well. Thinking to get dressed as fast as possible, she dashed to the bedroom. Only a suitcase was no longer sitting in the luggage rack. Joey? She groaned. She placed the room, trying her finger at the thumbnail. Joey was outrageous, unpredictable, unspoken, but Malone even thought she'd leave her in a Dallas room, hotel room, nothing, anything to wear, thinking there might be something in the dresser. She ran to it and again op- opening, began opening drawers, but as she found each one empty, a panic increased, and a pounding on her head became unbearable. Every bit of her clothing was gone, including her underwear. She couldn't believe Joey had done this, but had been best friends since the moment she hired Joey. Marlon took her, shook her head. Even 
with her over-the-top personality. Joe would never leave in Dallas without clothes. At least Nalo didn't think she would. Marlow wandered back in the living room and realised the closet door was ajar. She walked, walked to it, hoping Joey had left her things in there. Her heart sank when she pulled it open and found only the red dress Joey had brought her, hanging there, draped over one shoulder with a pair of off-the-black thigh eyes and a racy red push-up bra over the other. Resting on the floor was a pair of matching stiletto pumps. A piece of stage, hotel stationery was stuffed on top of the dress. She yanked it off the, out of the dress, dread settling into her stomach. Marlow, you'll kill me when you when you get back to her, get back to Abilene. Mister Jones will be at the club wearing his green shirt, sitting at the bar. He's supposed to be over six feet, blonde with blue eyes. You don't don't do anything I wouldn't do. Marlow waded out the piece of paper. And threw it in the waste bucket. How could Joey do this to her? Marlow didn't need a break. She needed was a good friend assistant. She looked at the dress and shook her head. It would barely cover her butt. But there's no way she's going to meet a hired escort dressed in that. She didn't care. She sat there all night. She didn't, really didn't. I'm oh, sorry, Mr. Jones, but we have an idea. No, I have no idea for an escort tonight, Marlow said with a frown. No, this would sound right, but how did one fire a gigolo and not sound like an idiot? She hurried down the street to the club and signed. When the neo sign came into view to block her head, a flashing red and white letters pierced the dark sky. Street illuminated the entrance. With each step she took the set of heels, jarred her feet. She returned to her hotel room. Tonight she consigned the red torture devices to hell and soak her feet for a month. She paid the doorman. Hurried to nightclub, goosebumps exploded across her skin while she'd stepped from the sultry Texas heat into the cool air of the nightclub. A glaring reminder that her chest was almost as bare as her neck. She shivered and crossed her arms. She was ready to kill Joey when she got, got a get hold of her. A red blanket sheath hung on her hips and rear end, highlighting every jiggle. With every step, the hem of it rose, and she hoped it wasn't rising above the top of the lacy thigh. Highs Joey had left for her. Malone mentally reminded herself of Joey's description of the man he eyed. He's six foot tall, blonde hair, green eyes, and wearing a green shirt. She glanced around the room and was surprised that more than a couple of pairs of eyes stared back, expecting like a piece of meat from the stockyards, usually... Jane Malone Jane Smith did not attract attention, small boned and short. She lacked the feminine attitude most men thought was sexy. Well, at least the little big commercials told them was sexy. Malone was rubbed her arms and scrutinised the men while line dancing. Hmm, lots of good looking blondes. None of them were wearing a green shirt. Unwilling to able to abandon her search, she decided to make one trip around the club. Marlowe would walk past a few of the tables, looking over the men, but no, not making eye contact. Aching her feet intensified with each step. Joey never had left at those clothes, knowing Marlowe would never let the man sit there all night. In rules of etiquette, were so ingrained in her, she would have to. She had to tell female hooker. She had to tell male hooker. 
She didn't need his services for the evening. She, it was a commotion to do exactly the right thing. Isn't so sad. She might have laughed at the foolish fault. She glanced around the club again, almost shrunk under the scrutiny. Ignore them. She could almost hear Joey whisper in her ear, determined to make it through the crowd and find Mr. Jones. She threw her shoulders back, causing her chest to rise and raised her chin and lunch. Then she saw him sitting on the lap at the end of the bar, with her head practically in his lap. Marlow glanced at the woman, gave her a dirty look, then cut a look to the man. Though he draped his arm around the, the back of the other woman's hair, he was staring at Marlow. She shivered as his gaze dropped down from his eyes, then to her shoulders and fighting her breasts. He continued a frank assessment down to toes, then all the way back up. One corner of his mouth quivered, quivered quirked, eyebrow was raised. Before she allowed herself to contemplate how to approach her paid escort, he leaned over and whispered something in the woman's ear. He smiled, smiled, and she shot Marlowe another dirty look while flouncing away. Marlowe glanced back at the woman man to find him gazing directly back at her, his intense stare causing a heated brush to rise from her chest to her face. Marlowe walked slowly toward the end of the bar. She inhaled deeply and took a seat. Be short to the point. Mr. Jones, I think there's been some kind of mistake. Darling, he said, his voice as smooth as whiskey. You're drinking? I'm not Mr. Jones, although I have to say. His eyes travelled down his own body again. I turned her face. I didn't mind taking his place. His centrist curves curved, and a couple of dimples appeared. She wanted twice, gathering the courage to explain who she was, if she was about in the ballroom. In her own clothes, she wouldn't have a problem confronting this man. Joey wouldn't float. Malone rarely used flotation. She never understood the final points. Uncomfortable in any kind of man to woman situation. Malone failed miserably during a last stint of dating scene. Never the one to sleep, spend a Saturday night defenseless. Joey badgered Malone about finding a man. But Malone avoided the discussion. She wanted to find a nice man and wanted to settle down. Malo was looking for a great passion, a dependent man who wanted a quiet life with a wife and kids. A life fine was, um, was fine with her. Joey thought she was a crazy hence to set school. As, as he sat there smiling at her with a blasted dimples and expectant look on his face. I know that's not your real name, she said, where his taxi action had grown more pronounced. But there's been a mistake. He leaned forward, placing his arms on the bar, confused, darkling his green eyes. I'm not the one who hired you, but I promise you you'll get paid. Hide me? He almost croaked. Yes, he said, lightly. Another glimpse of her eyes wandered to his open collar. A glimpse of golden brown hair curled in the V of his great green shirt. She found the urge to, t- to tell him to button it up. At the same time, she couldn't resist reaching out to comb her fingers through those curls and feel the hard, hot muscle in his chest beneath them. Why the hell was she thinking about his muscles? A friend thought that it would be a good idea to hire a man. For me for my 13th birthday, she watched the dimples as fear. Like I said, you'll get paid. I just can't see a good reason of hire a man, even if he's built like a great yard. He realized he raised one thick blonde eyebrow. But at least... Let me buy you a drink. She searches his expression in his face. Over the perusal. He didn't show any more, more interest in her than he probably would have shown any other woman. He definitely wasn't overcome with lust. She said, sure. But 
Then I only have to go. Lion Colonel stared at the petite woman beside him. She placed an order in the bar with the bartender. He felt free to look his fill when she ordered over the bar and le- ordered a club soda. She was little, small boned of a Benedict. She couldn't be more than five foot tall and stocking her feet. When he first saw her walk for the club, he thought she was taller. But the kid of fuck at me heels she wore gave the illusion of height. Did he don't matter? He loved all women, tall, short, skinny, fat, and any colour colour. He liked them. He didn't partic- personally love as Marie's brother, Heath, plainly he did. But he never was never lost for date. He strict guideline when he ended up in his bed. Women he dated knew the scorn, a fun time, no strings attached. He'd been sitting on the end of the bar, waiting for Heath, thinking he'd turn stood up Liam from one at work once again. It was about the cool night when he caught he called Heath to grip, gripe at him with a flash of red caught his eye. What struck him first was her demeanour as she carefully stepped through the crowd, avoiding contact with most of the men people there. She walked across the floor like a deb on the night of her coming out, but dressed like sin. A dress, red dress she wore left little to her imagination. It clung to every curve she had. A mass of inky hair cascaded down her back, making her want to bury his face in it. He couldn't make out the colour of her eyes, but she looked at some shade between blue and grey. Surrounded by thick lashes, she wore little makeup, but her bee stung lips were painted almost the same shade as red as her dress, and she's the cutest little overbite. At the moment, she's worrying her bottom lip when he realised he was staring at her mouth, wondering what it tasted like. Even felt he met a glaze and saw apparition. She must have strutted through the bar like a selfish old woman, but she was nervous. Well, who would be when trying to get to the bay dead school to take a hike? Now, Miss, he said, leaving it hanging and waiting for her to answer. Smith, Jane Smith. He chuckled, Smith Jones. He sat up straighter, thrusting her chest out. My real name is Smith. An interesting, maybe Mrs. Smith was using another first name. Mrs. Smith doesn't... Don't you explain why don't need an escort for leaving? He knew he was attracted to the opposite sex and enjoyed it when a woman was bold enough to approach him just as much as he enjoyed chasing them. But in all these years, he never had one of them trying to pick him up, claiming she paid for him for the evening. Not anyone else, not someone else had to paid. Web of Seduction by Brittany L. Devine Prologue, Dominique Present day, my name is Dominique Braxton. I'm just a normal guy who lives a normal life. I like action movies, poker night, with the fellas and a good lay now and then. I give a woman flowers and candy, and I'm supposed to, and treat them with respect. My throat clears in a dark room. Now I'm agitated. Fuck it. I'm a damn down criminal, half sex demon. I destroyed a woman I loved. That's my life. <coughs> I smile deviously when the shadow belonging to the little nuisance sitting across me jumps at the sound of my loud voice. I can't see her face, but I bet her eyes have nearly popped out of her bond head. The only lights in the pitch black room were coming from a door so far. To my far right, and the bright bulb 
a blurb from the camera popped to on Mrs. Miss Goody's shoes, two-shoes desk. Mr. Braxton, there's a lot more to it than that. And could you please refrain from using that kind of language? Fuck you. What's How's that for language? But as miserable as I am, I made a promise. This had to be done. I signed defeat and speak as I with as much fake cheer as I can muster. Fine, let's begin with my employment. <clears throat> Unless I'm buried a deep balls deep. Unless I'm born buried balls deep and pussy. The time is spent running my own criminal organization. The only difference between myself and other mafia bosses instead of playing on the weak, I shake up the rich and powerful. A genius tycoon, a head for numbers, has made me obscenely rich. One of few men feared by, by the 1%. Everyone, from diplomats to keep drug kingpins, dances eagerly to my tune. I help them keep their wealth in their electronical age, but I also take it away. Imagine a person knows where the richest, world's richest people keep their funds, can access it at any time. I'm a supernatural intellect because I'm a Carolinian. Carolinian is my demon human hybrid. A long time ago, the crater made the first man. Some of the big guys' soldiers decided to make trouble. He had the max sold in mutineers for internal lands, a lot of little buggers in the world of underworld, never to be freed. Who knew it? They liked to the fuck. Whether the X-Files remain secluded in prison, the kids, also known as demons, slipped out when the earth gets ingested and belches. I thought the bastard out in the form of a bad volcano. <coughs> <coughs> One of these crumb statues escaped my father, Manteus, an incubus. Dear old dad himself fell in love with a turkey woman called Butterfly. A cunt must have been some powerful shit to make a d- damn demon fall in love because it ain't normal pussy fobble. There's a lot more to the story, but I don't have time to explain all the bullshit to get, just deal with it. My grandpa is Satan. I'm, I'm for one, I'm glad I wasn't left to bounce on his knee. That means I'm half sexy and half human. Anyway, being a cameraman means I can have some extra, some cool extras that males, other males don't. I'm stronger and faster than the average man, have the power of a sexual persuasion. I can use it to carry out some pretty bad shit. I've got few witnesses, but those just will remain my secret for now. Trust gets people killed, and so does love. Probability to be me falling in love to slim to them, unless you count my bulletproof black answer to Martin Vanquish. Nope. Love was not my in my DNA to her. My sweet thing. I drugged her and fed her, and cravings and addiction provided. She loved every minute of it, until the monster came out. But then it was too late. I was the instrument of her destruction. I knew exactly what she thought. Just before the meeting of her demise, she wished she never laid eyes on me. Too bad the woman can't take back pussy. Chapter 1, Xena, one year ago. Love tunes echoed through the elaborately decorated red or white ballroom as my husband and I finished our first dance and wife. Husband, man, and wife. I never thought I would be so happy. We loved despite being opposites in every way. Each way. I taught ancient history at NVU, but was born and raised in North Carolina. In short, I was a country girl who liked to catch clean and fry my own fish. I walked 
around barefoot every chance I got, even though I could ne- I could change my own oil. There's no way I would become that. I would because I must. I had to snag the billionaire. Gabriel Duncan Sinclair was the CEO of Helicom, a parent company of several ocean rooms, galleries, theatres, and anything else that dealt with the arts. Six foot tall with honey blonde hair, dark super eyes, and a body like a wrestler. He used my everything, and I was his. I was over the moon, and I had to pee. Gabriel gave me a long but tender kiss, and I, I excused myself to a lady's room. After fighting my Vera Wing wedding gown, I did my business, stepped out into the hall, and nearly run down by a woman with greying urban hair. She was in her forties, had an astonishing number of freckles, and wore a black A-line dress of patient. There were pumps to match. I assumed she was one of Gabriel's guests, attempted to move around her. Excuse me, I said before I tried to, to pass, but she stayed right in front of me again. You don't know who I am, do you? She sm- laughed in amusement. Her eyes flashed with anger. No, should I? I'm here to save your life. I, it's not, I did not like the, where the conversation was going. The girl was supposed to get into a catfight on wedding day, but it was done part of it. But it, it was part pastime for fightless. You look a little odd for Gabriel, but you're not the first shanker to call out the woodwork since he and I got together. I'll put it. I don't put it. I didn't put them up with them. I won't put up with you. I signed my five foot nothing frame right up to her. Looked her dead in the eye, put her, my hit hand on the hip and glared. My southern accent always came more pronounced whenever I got angry. Now I get the hell out of my way before I stomp my mud hole into your ass. You're just as bad as your husband. Maybe you helped him. Is that what, what gets you two off? A glass is shot, but the intruder was determined to be heard. Madeline was my niece. She's only 17, and your husband murdered her. When they found her body, had been torn apart. Hi, welcome to the Holes of Art podcast show. And today I'm talking to the person behind the Black Case Diaries movie-TV podcast. Tell us about you and your podcast. Our names are Robin, Marcy and Adam. All three of us have degrees in visual media. We love film and TV. We've been bonding over it for 14 years. Our podcast is called the Black Case Diaries. We discuss any topic relating to film and TV. We try to educate audiences about unfamiliar topics while trying to learn ourselves. Our listeners seem to belong to to be in the 2030 range. We try to appeal to everyone who's passionate about movies and TV. Why? How did you start this podcast? We, the podcast started a few years ago when two of our co-hosts lived together. We realised that we had strong rapport and listening to other podcasts made us want to try it ourselves. Adding the third person was just things clicked. Our motivation was to be part of the broad conversation. We were all introvert and the podcast was giving us a chance to learn more about who we are 
and what we have to offer others in terms of nonishment and entertainment. We started recording episodes about five years ago, but I never put them anywhere. November 2018, we decided to start trying again and forced ourselves to put the episodes out there. So technically, it took us a few years to release our first episode, but when we launched, it took a couple of weeks. How do you find time and funding to do this podcast? We realised we release an episode each week. Sometimes we release a smaller episode along with a full-length episode. We typically spend a week gathering necessary information on days for the episode. The interview process usually takes five to eight hours. It usually helps that we created a consistent schedule for recording and releasing. We record on a specific day and work around it. One of us has a more flexible work schedule and is able to work more on marketing. What do you gain from podcasting? We don't currently take sponsorship. We would like to eventually. A podcast has benefited us greatly through friendship and education. We're still new and we feel we already learned more about filming each other. Keeping an adult relationship can be difficult. Podcast has given us the opportunity to spend more time and eat with, with each other, doing something we love. We also feel our podcasting has given us a creative outlet, not only through our voices, but through the ideas behind each episode of marketing. How do you produce your podcasts? We use ten microphones, one Scarlett Unisonic microphone, a two thousand audio mixer. We call straight into H four Zoom. It takes SD cards. All the editing is done in Android Premiere. You may have, we have not had any guests yet for the podcast. We may in future interviewing isn't really part of our format. Every time we record, we decide a topic for the week, next week's episode. Then we create the Google Doc and we all edit throughout the week. This is where we add research and links to our discussion. How do you market your podcast show? Our main show site is Podbeam. We direct most of our listeners to this site through Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher podcast provides us with analytics so we have a breakdown of excretion sources right now itunes has been our highest previous percentage listeners we find instagram and twitter to be the most helpful with marketing instagram provides us the ability to use our visual strength in order to market new episodes we create unique visuals for each episode of drawing listeners twitter allows us to directly communicate directly with listeners and other podcast hosts. We also create physical meeting tools, magnet shirts to get the word out. What advice would you share with aspiring new podcasters? Well, we're still at a very new podcast. You learn about us on our blog, blackcasesdiaries.wordpress.com.
wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. Our journey, we have learned how important it is to be different ourselves from other podcasts. We understand how important it is to establish a voice early and confident in your story. You are. We started to recognize that time committed, time commitment podcasts and tales, which much more and more we realized we discovered that growing equipment, having established space available, but with good connect content is key. We're still learning it every day, and that's what we love about this process. Other podcasts are a great respect resources that you start out. We found it helpful to watch the process, learn about pros. Groups like Podify, P-O-D-E-R-N, 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 are incredibly helpful when it comes to networking. Where can we learn more about your podcasts? Backcasediaries.podbeam.com Twitter slash backcasediary Instagram.com slash backcasediaries podcast HL equal EN Facebook.com Backcasediaries podcast dash question mark moral equals admin dash to do dash to her back case diaries dot wordpress dot com Doby Doby Go to School written by Susan Pennington Illustrations by Mike Moose Breakfast Mouse style It was a beautiful August mutt day the sun was shining, a gentle breeze blew through the yard. The leaves and the trees and the flowers in the yard seemed to be waving good morning to Susie as she burst through the front door into the porch. She had some exciting news and eager to share it with her friends, Toby and Doby. Quickly she climbed into the big green wicker chair below the mouse house. Aunt Olive hung up for them. Using her finger she tapped on their front door. From inside, she could hear Dobie yell, I got it, Mum. Mother? Hey, Susie, Dobie said, opening the door. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, it is, Susie agreed. I invite you in, but the, you are too much, you're much too big. Dobie laughed. He liked teasing Susie about how big she was. Susie kibbled and gave Dobie a poke with his tummy. Said he, Mouse. Mother Mouse, wondering whom her little one was talking to, came to the door. She wore the apron. Aunt Olive had sewn for her and was wiping her paws on it. Good morning, Susie, Mother Mouse said. You up and I'm about early? Are you cooking breakfast? Something sure smells good, Susie said, sniffing it, sniffing at the air. Cheese omelets and cheesy biscuits, Mother Mouse answered. Would you like to try some? Mmm, yes, please, Susie said, a great big smile on her face. Okay, I'll be right back, Mother Mouse said, turning towards the kitchen. Just then, Toby appeared at the door. What's up, he asked. Your mother's mum is getting me some of your biscuit breakfast for me to try. It smells delicious. Your mum is getting some of your breakfast for me to try. It smells delicious, Susie told Toby. Mother makes the best cheesy omelettes and cheesy biscuits for everyone. It says, it, it see if I, Doby, and I could bring ours outside too. B 
Be right back, Toby said, running towards the kitchen. A packet for breakfast? Toby said, how cool is that? Pretty cool, Susie said. I'll go and pull out my picnic table for us. Susie jumped on a chair and ran. Susie jumped off the chair and ran to the corner of the porch where Mummy kept her picnic table. It was pretty heavy. Susie tugged and tugged. Soon she had it out in the sunlight where he would enjoy their breakfast picnic together. Just as Susie got it placed, Toby and Mother Mouse came to the door carrying plates. Susie reached up and took the plates at one at a time and Mother Mouse and placed them on the table. Then she took Toby's and put them on the table too. Mother went back and got three nibbles full of milk as Toby and Toby scurried down to the table. When Mama has returned, Susie takes, took the nibbles out of the milk and placed them on the table next to the plates. You children enjoy your breakfast. Don't forget to put your dishes up here on the pouch before you run off to play, Mama Mouse instructed. We won't forget. The three friends echoed, settling down to enjoy their breakfast. There are the best cheesy biscuits I ever had, Susie said. Of course, I don't think I've ever had cheesy biscuits before. Probably not, Toby said. Only mice eat cheese. Don't be silly. Humans eat cheese too, Toby said, shaking his head at his goofy little brother. They do, Toby asked with surprise. Of course we do, Susie said. We eat lots of... Highlander Imagine for lovers' sake, Wendy Lou Jones. He's coming for me, Duncan. Duncan threw his arms around Teresa, the woman he loved more than his own life. As by his own act, his false will alone, he would, could sometime, somehow halt the impending nightmare which is folding around them when an apparent drug-related shooting nearly takes Tressa Noel's mortal life. Duncan richly searched for the shooter to bring him to justice. Immortal Amanda is on the prowl again. Her female instincts led them her back to the irresistible Duncan. Complicating matters. Trees is unexpectedly confronted with a secret information she could have not foreseen coming, threatening to unravel the bond between her and her ugly, handsome, immortal Highlander. But it isn't Amanda's wanton desires, Teresa has to worry about. When hostile immortals close in, Duncan, cantina in hand, perhaps to take heads in a fight to return their knowledge to normal. But can he detect the real threat in all the confusion around him before it's too late? Highland Imagined is a series based on the original Highlander TV series. The book reboots the series just five seconds before the bullet hits Teresa in the TV episode called The Darkness and asks the question, who, who would, how would everyone's life change if Teresa had survived? This work of series was fully authorised by David Panzer Productions and Studio Canal Films Limited. However, the content is wholly on an old K Books original creation and new action series. Wise, the Oil Ninja and the Missing Rainbow Diamond by Shininda Coffin.
Why, he's the owl ninja, was born in a dojo and raised a pack with training ninjas. He was very wise as he started to copy what he saw the ninjas learning. Wise wanted to use the skills he learned at the dojo for the good. When he was let to go to be on his own, with his own kind, that's what he did. Sherman Pathways, Black Horse, White Horse, Abstract. In February, Moon Books is publishing Sherman Pathways, Black Horse, White Horse, a book aimed at pagans, witches and shamans, as well as at anyone who loves horses and horses' lore. The book is written by Musuli Draco, author of the traditional witchcraft of urban living, traditional witchcraft of the seashore, and by this spell book and candle. Here is an extract from the Black Horse, White Horse, printed here with permission for moon books. Superstition. Many of the traditional superstitions connected with any divorces make it very difficult to separate historical fact from fiction. From my early times, horse skulls and bones were among the first, most frequent finds of the old buildings. They were obviously placed there as some form of protection against malevolent forces. A church in Elsdon, Northumberland, has, su- has three such skulls in its tell- bell tower, and more than 40 years, for, more than 40, were discovered screwed to the underside of the floor in a portway public house at Stratton on Wye in Herefordshire. A custom of severing a horse's head for the purpose of acquiring a protective relic may have given rise to numerous headless horse legends that abound in the British Isles. It's, it's, it stands to reason that the discovery of horse remains by this head will give rise to any all sorts of grisly tales told over pint of ale. Horse bones are discovered in, in the foundation of horses during reveration and it always houses during reveration. They were often removed when the owners discovered the macabre remains. Folklore maintains however that the bones serve as amulets to keep away the nightmare. According to the local tradition, if the family owned a good house and it died it was a question to bury the head under the house to retain the virtues of the animal and protect the building, its occupants from evil. By removing these equine amulets, the new owners may be caught in disaster by allowing superstition and screamishness to interfere with protective right. For better to reconstruct them and inter the remains rather than tempt Providence by getting rid of them. This has been viewed as pure superstition in these days, scepticism, but a disturbance of specifically intended remains may invite unwanted psychic phenomenon as a result. The supposed magical influence of horse survives. Horses survive in folklore, such as placing the felt's fair around the throat of a cure. Gu- out or eaten in a sandwich to ward off women, worms, and a child.
Well, the pair, pairings from the horse's hooves are given to the dogs to kill worms. It's also thought the tail hairs were left in the water. They could turn into eels. John Wesley and who had an interest in the birth program of these, recorded the dried, powdered horse furs, colosols, found on the inside of a human's leg, animal's leg, could, could be taken to an infusion of warm milk and an ale. The cure for a whooping cough was to allow a pilot horse to breathe on the patient. Consume, consumption or chest complaints could be healed if a sufferer Went to stay was inhaled the breath of any horse there. Whether love, lo, whether law tells you if a group of horses been standing with their backs on the hedge, it's an omen of bad weather. Wispy chloroform clouds, along been known as mares' tails or frillies' tails, are often used to forecast the weather. For example, mares' tails moving infinite self indicate uncertain weather in the way. It's especially true during the summer. Half the year, according to Paul John Goldstock, in Weatherwise, Mayor's Tail Contras should be considered the weatherman's cloud, for it covered it for it's covered by thirty three different points of weather law that reliably predict future winds, rain or fair skies and perfect summer days. There are many other superstitions contained being connected, um, all manner of connect, superstitions connected to c- colour horses. In many areas, it's said to be unlucky to dream of white horses. The black horse is unlucky, and Payed is unlucky. In other regions, the reverse is true. In certain rural areas, it's said to be unlucky to meet a grey white horse with a, while setting off on a journey, and those encountering one should spit on the ground for good luck. Who was snorted during the journey? This is considered a good omen. As has, as you see, some people on the meeting on White Horse will keep their fingers crossed until they say dog. My grandfather made me keep my fingers crossed all the way to town and back again because we happened to see White Horse in the field just after we left home and couldn't find a dog anywhere, remembers one horsewoman. Shaman Pathways is available on Amazon.com at a price of £6.99. It's your damn story, D.R. Downer. Chapter 1, Meet and Greet. All right, I'm off for the day. You're coming, Nicole? Angela asked her next cubicle neighbour, pick up her bag. Nah, got shit to do, Nicole replied, without even bothering to look up from the computer. Oh, come on, girl, it's 5.30 and it's Friday. Live a little, will you? I'm living, I'm breathing, aren't I? That's not called living, Nicole. It's called being alive. It's a different issue, you know, a huge one, Angela quipped. Nicole finally looked up and flashed a fake smile at the other girl. What would it take for you to leave me alone? I have told you a zillion times that I'm not like you. I hate parties. I hate gossiping. I hate dolling up for the boys. I actually detest makeup. 
by the amount of cosmetics you Barbie dolls put on your face daily. I can't even call it makeup. It's bloody disguise. Now please leave me alone, because I said I've got shit to do here. It's been, it took quite a, took a while for Angel to pull her hanging mouth back up and regain her composure. Yeah, right. As if any of makeup can make your ugly fat, fat face of yours look human. Go fuck yourself, Nicole. No one, nobody likes you, you fat cow. You'll die alone, you know, Angela remarked, walking towards the door. Bye-bye, girlfriend, Nicole exclaimed, adjusting glasses and dunking her head back into the computer. Mission accomplished. Love on one down, she thought, of herself and smiled. Usually everyone left the office by six in the evening, but being a Friday, every light in the office was completely out, except the one in Nicole's cubicle. She was desperately working to find a way to hack into one of her clients' websites. She was getting desperate with each passing second. After all, she was the most revered and respectable ethical hackers this side of the world. It all started three years ago, back when she took part in a hacking challenge phone open to the public by the Pentagon. There was a cash prize of $100,000 for anyone who would be able to hack into their systems in one hour. Nicole reached the venue 15 minutes late with denied entry inside. To detected, she went and sat on the pavement. Two minutes later, a series of messages started popping up on every computer saying inside the Pentagon. Jingle bells, jingle bells all the way. Oh, what fun it is to hack the unexpected prey. 15 minutes late, he didn't even let me enter. There was traffic, God damn it. Everyone's come up, come on out with my my hundred thousand a letter of apology. My name's Nicola Griffin Henson. I'm sitting on the pavement outside. BTW. Change your Wi Fi code. Password one two three Santa is real. Four five six. So is so two ferry seven eight nine. Seriously guys. Inside the pentagram. The head of technology department turned and glared at one of his teammates, who had already started to clear off his disk by then. For the next two years, Nicola had worked for the Pentagon, helping them make making their systems and website completely hackproof. By the time a contract with the Pentagon got over, Nicola and more than a dozen top software brands lined up that hour. She chose Red Ants included. For two reasons. One, they were the technical leaders in ethical hacking. And two, the office was a walking distance for Wolverhampton Parkway, where she stayed in a studio apartment. Chapter 2. It begins. It is almost 9.30 by the time Nicole reached back home. She exhausted cock. She ordered her food from her favourite Chinese restaurant by the way back. On the way back, and found the delivery man standing outside her door. As she called out, came at the elevator. She quickly paid him, grabbed a parcel, and went inside. After a dirty bath and changing into comfortable nightwear, she sat down on a cocoon chair with a book, a glass of red wine, and takeaway container. Expertly, she placed the book in between her folded legs and started a daily routine of drinking, eating, and reading. These things have been her only hobby since she had shifted to New York from the parents' place in Baltimore, Baltimore, Vermont. Half an hour into reading, Nicole tossed the book on the couch. What crap is this? Is it what she gets passed around for literature nowadays? She kept the wine glass and the food container on the side stall and grabbed her laptop from the study table. 
She opened up the browser and went on a famous e-book render site to look up for a suitable read for the evening. After spending almost half an hour on site, she still couldn't find the kind of romantic read she had in mind. Besides, she had enough. She closed the browser and brought up the obscure Rotel site on the black web. Not many people knew about the black and dark web because not many people were intended, were intended to. It had taken her almost a year to get entry into it. Now, since she's a recognised member, she had access to any and all of the dark secrets of the world. She was a voracious reader. She never went for the famous titles. Instead, she looked for the ones that were not so famous yet, but deserved to be. The unknown, the unforgotten, the hidden gems of the literary world. And that's the way she saw it. It was only a small window that looked like a sponsored advertisement on the top right corners for, on the screen. Love Kills, available for sale. A one and only copy of the masterpiece by Jovanina Bechakarara from India. Bidding starts at midnight tonight. Worldwide free delivery. Believe in love? You must read it. Do not believe in love? You need to read it. Nika went on to read the blurb. A 23-year-old fit and beautiful Nikola Gina Oblia. Her 20 years old, lean and handsome, Jaya Dixitit were madly in love with each other. What made Nikola to, to suddenly lose interest in life in general, and Jinhani Jay in particular, will they be able to recall the start of their life afresh, or will they set defeat at the hands of fate and go their separate ways? Nika knew they were there, and then she had to buy this book, that book. She looked at the time on the laptop. She still had set 15 minutes before Billy started. She went in to fetch her credit card and other stuff that she needed for the bidding. She wanted to keep everything handy, and she knew how it worked fast and furious. Bidding started at $10, and she bid 12 Someone immediately put, bid 15 She bid 20 Pretty soon, the bid was up to $100. Nicole was not ready to give up. She had that book with anyway. She bid $200 straight away. There was silence for a moment, and it beat again. Someone had bid 500 Oh, yeah, is that how you want to play? Bring it on, kid, because I've got lots to burn. About half an hour bidding and cross-bidding. Later, Nico was a proud owner of the book that cost her almost half a month. Suddenly, the phone beat twice, indicating she had a new email. She checked and found it to be from the book bidding site. Congratulations, and you've been the owner of the one and only copy of Love Killed by Jolena McCurry. You will receive it within five, three to five days on your registered address. It said, five days? Why the fuck five days ago, Jared? Then she saw it. Dan, it's hard copy. I thought it was an e-book. Oh, well, I should have known there would be only one copy of an e-book. There couldn't be only one copy of e-book. Funny, not having anything to read. That evening, Nicole poured herself another glass of wine. She put on her favourite song, Wicked by Chris Isaac, on iPod, and settled down for the couch for, this, for the night. Slippery. When Wet's Classic Fairy Tales of Murder and Mayhem by Linda Fennec. Acknowledgements. Many thanks to granddaughter Amanda, Archer and friend, author Rebecca J. Martin for their contributions to the cover art. This work was inspired by our love of writing many horror, murder and conspiracy songs such as I Can't Sleep at Night, The Henchman's Coming Random, Adoption and Criminal Tales Blues, 
which will be found all major streaming sites under the band our band name Slippery When Wet Linda Van Sido Kant Von Shadow Rapunzel Once upon a time Abigail grasped Oh all these dreary places it must be absolutely worse yet a ladder instead of stairs can hardly catch my breath just for just now just walking You know we go where the work is Amber said Well that's it that is all Ever here, Amber? Amber, the, you're always obvious, oblivious to that what kind of hovel we live in. You think this is what I want, Abigail? I suppose you'd rather not eat. Yes, forgive me, dear. Living over a barn is so delightful. I shall be soon craving hay if we stay here any much longer. At least it's not. At least it's not sleeping in the forest, dining on snake. I wonder what that rich lady in the big house is eating tonight. Better than the slop we are living on, I'm sure. Wasn't wasn't it you just moaning about being fat, Abigail? Baby fat, like the heifer ready to drop. Maybe I, I'm in the right place, come to think of it. You know the barn is not being used for animals anymore. I think you ought to be shut up for now. Well, it still smells to me. Not that it's not you in this condition running up and down for everything. I can't even cook inside of this tinder box. He ignored her instead, mumbled something about her needing his dinner. About him needing his dinner. How hungry he would be, Abigail wondered. If she ever if he knew lately, she felt like feeding him poison for dinner. She turned around, taking in the tiny living quarters, really nothing more than a wooden box in a loft. She moved to the only filthy little window in the room and forced it open and gazed out. Was she was she dreaming? Perhaps it was a bearable. Here after all, the window looked down on the most beautiful sea of puppies now blooming behind a high wall. A breeze kicked up at the moment as if to tease her, infusing the air in sweet perfume. She watched men rise as the petals fluttered away, exposing plump milky pods, perfect and ripe, of ready harvest. Amber, huh? she called. A voice growing soft and breathy. Come over here. Look at this. What now? Just get over. Just get over here. I can't believe I didn't notice before. Darn it! I can't get anything to eat. Can I at least get some rest? Stop being so obstinate and keep your voice down. Most, most everybody know your our business. Okay, okay. He grunted out of his chair and lumbered to the window. What is the commotion all about? He said, asked, following a glaze. Oh, no, you're not having any of that. You you, you gave it up. I'm going to have this baby one day now. I just need something for the pain. You know that's impossible anyway. We have no money, Abigail. Who said anything about buying them? She hissed. I don't care how you get some. Just get them. There's no point arguing when she got this way which is now much too often. He wanted any peace, he'll have to go do her bidding, shaking his head and sighing, clambered down the ladder into the first floor storage area. It was dusty and long search, but he discovered a piece of old meat hooks and a long coil of horsehair rope. It would work, sweating in the barn, waiting for the dark. He almost lost his nerve. He didn't want to be caught stealing from the powerful enchanters, Dame Gruffle. 
but he did, could not return empty-handed either. Or Abigail would do something foolish, like trying to get them, get them herself, and she would surely get caught. He felt like a thief in the night. No, he was a thief in the night. He realised a falling shrubbery, singing the, ringing the wall, called Claude. His flesh is punishing him for his coming misdeed. It was a new moon, and the landscape was black velvet. But even in the dark, he knew he was staring at what was at least a ten-foot wall. And furling the rope, Annabelle tried his first shot, a tossing hook over the wall. He blindly scrambled out the way in the dark as the hook came crashing down again. Down. He didn't, he wasn't fast enough and bit his tongue, suppressing a scream, a shot hook and gazed at the side of his head. Annabelle cursed under his breath, wishing he could go back home. But a picture of raging Abigail flashing in his head kept him at it finally, until finally he had a bit of luck. At last, without putting any, out an eye, he scrambled over the wall and staggered a few, a poor full of blooms, heart pounding, a flood of adrenaline drove him quickly back over the wall, soaking wet and shaking the thoughts about the heavy consequences of a thief. Amber fled, forgetting the hook on the top of the wall. By the time he reached the loft, he was exhausted and thrust the flowers into Abigail's face. Do you own your evil deed, woman? I need to get some sleep for work. Oh, no, you don't. Not so fast. What the devil is this? I can't make anything out of this. You need to go back and get at least twice this. And you wonder who and more that would be better. You're crazy. That woman's in the trenches. I'm not going back over there. Look at me. I'm a mess and bleeding. I'm smelling like a goat. From pouring sweat. Big man crying like a baby over his crutches. You're going back over there. And you're going to get more now. And don't come back until you do so, she hissed. Ambler was still dazed from the recent blow. He gently probed a growing knot on the side of his head. His hand came away red. He wiped it on the tunic. Okay, I'm going, he mumbled. And sat back out once again. Fight the unruly hedges. He hoisted himself over the wall for the second time, but that was feeling weak and lost his grip. He somehow tumbled backward into the ground, with a resounding thud and water of the air escaping his lungs. His fall didn't, didn't do his head wound well enough. He lay there, he lay still listening, while trying to recover his strength from grasping like a fish out of water. Now his shoulder didn't feel right either. As he lay there, again trying to grow his senses, and praying not to get caught, he listened closely to so, that for anyone else moving about. Only sympathy of crickets played by the, to the flowers. His head cleared at last. He rolled over and began to belly crawl back through the back pit, pitch black till he reached the closest patch of flowers. This time he did not timidly pluck a few stems, vault back to the wall over the wall, said he violently yanked them out of the ground as fast as possible, and stuffed them into pockets and any other places he thought he could carry some. Disoriented, he just stood and stumbled back to the wall. Oh no, where's the rope? Had the crickets gone quiet? Now all he heard was his heart slamming his chest. He frankly groped around the wall. Both to his, both left and right, and then suddenly his hair stood on end, like it was an electrical charge in the air. 
He mopedly froze at his tracks. A throaty female laughter floated eerily all around him. It sounded neither friendly or nor amused. He threw down the poppies and once again, to no avail, began to frankly scurry back and forth, searching for the rope. From nowhere, a powerful hand shot out a glove, tapped his wrist, a bolt of lightning flashed. He found himself gazing at who would only be the unconscious herself. He had not met her when he had been hired. She, she stood statuesque and stunning, gleaming pattern of hair, fell to her wrist, thick waves. It adulterated in the breeze against memori- almost memorising him. He could not guess her age. She would have been twenty, or she could have been two hundred. She scared the life out of him. She gazed at the sky and softly murmured, Looks like the rainy season's coming. His knees shook as he remained in a face gripe. We could do, we can use some rain, she continued. The unconscious turned her head, her eyes on him. They glowed like a cat in the dark. Uh, uh, he stuttered. I was only getting some of your beautiful body, poppies for my dear child boy. Please have mercy. Don't you mean your pregnant, addicted tart of a wife? If you don't, if you don't get her some, although she'll, she'll die. Foolish man, you believe that? It makes you a chance to steal from me. No, she's just my wife. You know what they do what they do to feed Savannah, she coolly said. They hang them. Oh, please, please, he sobbed. I beg you. I'll give you work, food and shelter. This is how you pay me. I should have taken a pass on you as soon as I laid eyes on your wife. And yes, I see you too through. You did not know it. She's a bad one. And that poor child you two are bringing into the world, this world, she can only take care of yourselves. And speaking of the child, are you sure it's yours? What could I do? Adabar's voice quivered. He was terrified of the idea of swinging in the rope. He would promise anything to avoid Dane Groff's wolf. It's one of the most small things you can grant me, Adabar in turn. You shall have all the puppies you can carry. I will supply you a lovely big basket to carry them all. Anything, anything, please. Just please, you grovelled. Are you certain, Adabar? It only turning back the price shall be tremendous if you cross me. His, vo- his wrists grew hotter in her grip. It was near a blazing fire. The heat was it turning off his heat. A river of sweat flowed down the cliff of his back. I want the child, she said, if it's a girl, you know. Had he heard her wrong? What do you mean? When a child becomes, it belongs to me, she gripped, tightened painfully. His arm, his voice rose when she spoke. You want the child? And it then dawned on him. It was his chance to escape. Rich woman would care for the child. Abigail would look out for herself. A fanny with a drugged tart of a wife. And likely a bastard child was not all, all he wanted. Perhaps indeed it was not his. Even if, she, if he, it stung when the entrance said it. She made him face the truth. Already he was only making plans and he said to leave. Perhaps later, when Abigail passed out in a poppy stupor, he would gather up his things and sneak away. Dane Groffel was right. He was a fool. Let Abigail deal with her when the time came. She probably wasn't capable of taking care of it. Anyway, yes, Abigail whispered. Yes, he said again. A more convincing. Yes, you may indeed have it. His wrist still in a death grip, 
she ranked him forward nearly, knocking him off his feet. He yelped a sudden sharp pain. She had sliced his finger and jammed it against a piece of staff by stiff parchment. She had no idea how she produced so fast or out of nowhere. Done, she said. I never forget what I said. Do you even think of running off with a child? As long as I have your blood, I will always track you. She quickly dropped his wrist, rolled up the parchment, and she was gone like a puff of smoke. Avidel quickly felt the change in the air. He tried to rub some circulation back in his arm. The crickets now resumed chirping. A breeze whipped up, and he heard a gentle but unspeakable slap of rope swinging against the wall. He stood for a moment, rubbing his wrist and regaining what remained of his senses. He took a few cautious steps forward and stumbled right over the basket. She had promised a heavy rope was already attached to the sturdy handle so he could haul it up when he was ready to go. Now he's free to wander f- further in the garden. The ground was so thick of poppies, it was easy to grab handfuls and basket quick- filled quickly. A storm was trying to move in, and folks of lightning and horizon helped guide his way. He grinned himself. Soon there'll be some, no more demanding Abigail, no future screaming rat to put up with. He would be free. Abigail was huffed back to the barn and dropped the basket out in front in the dirt. Abigail, he hurried up for the walls of the window. Here's your darn flowers. No no response. Typical, we thought. Where was she? He walked around the back of the barn. There was a stroke in the fire. There was a rigged a pot over it. Oh, you're back at last. She taunted Abigail Hornsen himself. Why so long? You're fortunate. I returned at all. She caught me. Did you get them or not? I'm losing patience. Are you? It's a possible satisfy. Yes, I got them. Then why not stop blubbering and bring them over here to me? Abigail retorted. He fetched a basket for her. As much as he hated what she was doing, his crusty was got the better of him. He watched her suddenly nimble fingered wife, whom normally could barely fix a decent egg for him. Like a masked corpse, he towed over a steaming pot that reeked of lime and barred ammonia. In the firelight, he could see that as Abigail turned each bit open, some milky pod and held them. Up one by one, letting their sap ooze into the boiling construction. But soon a white scum began foaming at the top of the kettle water, and she carefully scooped it off. He had seen enough, as he was much too tired to talk. Even his hunger was subsided. It didn't matter anymore to anyone. Anymore. He decided to wait till he earned his first pay, and he'd be gone. I'm going to bed now, he said. Abigail didn't even look up for her task. Honor bid him good night. After another day, long day's work, Abigail was great. Abigail was grateful for finally collapsing in the chair. Abigail, are you up there? I need something to eat. Silence. The sleeping curtain around his pallet fluttered in the corner of his eye. He snapped his head that way. He rose, walked over, and thrust aside. Abigail gazed up from the sleeping pallet. Eyes out of focus, she raised her head slightly. He bothered his sense gently. Her neck, before putting back, putting it back down and closing her eyes again. Suddenly, Edward uh, was no longer worried about missing dinner. He could always eat later. He'd gotten paid with and that, and with Emma's current condition, he wouldn't have to wait all night for for her to pass out. 
He immediately hurried to the meagre light larder. Inside the pack himself a lion's share of food, along with other things. He's going to have to spend the night in the forest tonight without her. He'll be able to move more quicker, even more permanent shelter far quicker. He doubted the hunt the enchantress would let Abigail go hungry. No, not with the baby coming. No worries. Abigail would have the baby here. Dane Goffel would claim it. As for him, he'd be long gone. Abigail's flowers of joy were finally wearing off. She woke up to fussing that was likely Abigail was fumbling around in the dark. Why didn't he light the lantern? Was he up? What was he up to? She had never trusted him. He always was able to get a job, and she needed that, especially right now. She heard him going down the ladder. Where was he going? She decided to follow. She descended on the lower level and called, Emmerdell, are you down there? On the doors was a door. She stepped out in the night. Fingers of lightning shot across the sky. The back lit Emmerdell's back bulk, hurrying away. In a covering dark, it appeared to be a bundle of his belongings. She didn't know what gave him so much strength as late as her pregnancy. Perhaps the great, the great haze of anger quickly overcoming her as his cavalier uh, desertion. Sprinting, the lowered one shoulder, launching herself with a dead weight center into Elverdale's back, sending him face first into stone wall of curling sack. He began in scattering around him. His ankle and his nose snapped simultaneously. He tried to make a step and screamed in agony. A bitch had hobbled him. His nose leaked blood and he dizzy. He Literally, he sank to the ground. The sky flashed again, and Abigail spied a metal meat hook on the ground, winking up at her. Take me! It spoke to her in a poppy out of the brain. She obeyed, grasping it with both hands. The sky continued to strobe. Lightning held way, and again charged. Abigail now with his back to her, sitting on the ground, massaging his ankle. She covered a short distance. She swung the hook in the air with both hands and brought it down firmly into his skull. She viciously yanked it, back, rip it, rip back, ripping a huge piece of bone along with it being a torrent of red and grey matter pouring out of his head. He flopped over into one side into the dirt. Abigail's unnatural burst of energy now deserted her. A sudden pain tore to her sides, doubling her over. Water gushed from between her thighs. Oh no, not now. She screamed and she slipped out an own mess and filling her face into Abigail's going between more screams. She attempted to roll away. The storm was coming up and manic lightning bolts shot all across the sky. The earth itself now rumbled violently beneath Abigail as huge drops of rain assaulted her. When the entrances materialised in Abigail's Water blurred vision silhouetted against the light snow. I see my child is coming, the enchanter said, lowering, towering over her. Even when I'm in pain, Abigail was stunned by the decoration. What do you mean, your child? I figured since you just murdered your husband, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't approve of our arrangement. Abigail grasped a number shot pain racked at her body. Oh no, he wasn't deserting me, and then just one last. Correct, correct, and ripped Abigail apart, hemorrhaging her. Till she lost all consciousness, the entrance bent down to scoop out the newborn, while Abigail's life leaked away in the rain, along with her husband, Abigail's. She glanced at the bodies, compo- compost for the fields, she thought. 
returning to her task. She clamped the umbilical ball between her teeth, nearly, se- nearly severing it. Lightning continued to flash wildly, and heavens now continually opened, almost as if on cue. Dane Goff stood and raised the newborn to the downpour, and it washed the infant clean. She declared, I see, I shall call you Rapunzel. She approached adolescence faster than an actress could ever wish for. Rapunzel had her monthly a short while back, and the farmhands were already sniffing around like dogs. It would be no use to replace them. They all be the same when they saw her. Sea green eyes and abundance of pale pearl blonde hair and hourglass figure was unmistakably magnet, unmistakable magnet for the young men. And tranches had made her rain in, in her comely hair, waving into thick braids and pulling under her kerchief, hoping to at least deter the young male lust. Rapunzel soon discovered she could hide things in those thick coils that had continued to grow, grow like weeds, now several times the length of her body already. A love's one lonely spring morning, a young field hand named Peter spied her sitting on the garden, standing herself. He came up to her and said, You can't, you can make something magical with that. You will make you feel like a princess. He first thrust a fat banquet poquette at her, and he covered as he spoke. But you must hide these from Dame Guthrie. Meet me. Here after dark, and I will teach you, you know. As it, as it sounded so exciting to her, she definitely bored at the time. And the only girl she ever saw, even close to her age, was a little one called Red, who stopped from time to time to get flowers for her grandmother. She would never stay and visit with Rapunzel for more than a hello and a few polite words. And later that afternoon, the flowers still carefully tucked under her ropes, a braid, she met up with Peter. He sneaked away to Long Lead, too, in a heavy thicket of the forest where she stayed. He built a small fire in the old stove and taught her how to turn the pods into magic. He promised as well as he taught her other things she did not know about. She liked it so well. The next day she invited him to the empty apartment for the old, above this old storage barn to join her in the panlet behind the curtain and still hung there. It was, like, it was taking a chance, but there were no insects to crawl over it in a loft like those invading his snack shack, and again gave her a bit of much-needed thrill to think she could do under a, do it right under the Dane Gross' nose. The chances was busy in town a day anyway, and Rapunzel knew she would likely be gone till sundown. Dame Gruffle left the usual time, but a rock slide happened to block in chances' route apart. Way in a trip. It was an impossible without her area, the path to simply steer the carriage round. She so have to turn to the farm, have to to mend to get back to remove it. At the carriage pulled through the gate, her sharp senses kicked in high gear. Something was definitely amiss. She had barely was out of the carriage when she heard faint laughter wafting towards her. It came from our barn. She was sure of it. Interest dreaded what it must 
that what she must do. She did not hesitate and set off a brisk place. Standing beneath, laughed more muffled gurgles adrift. Drifted through the above, mistakeable odour premeditated in the dawn barn. Dame Gruffle had the ability of moving in total silence and made use of it now. She reached the curtain and yanked it aside and witnessed to her worst fear. Peter made a move to flee and tried to instantly placed both he and Rapunzel in a chance. It's all over, Rapunzel, she said. Since you enjoyed it so well up here, you'll never leave. You'll have sealed your young man's fate as well. Workers were summoned to the barn and quickly began double reinforcing reinforcing apartment walls at Dame Gruffle's orders. A man jumped at her commands like terrified rabbits and could not believe Peter was so foolishly bold. They had little trouble realising Peter's fate while the blood-curling screams drifting from the curling house. Even all the hammering and pounding was enough to block out all the horrible sounds. As the men watched the hunchances again, entered the loft, and sadly shook her head as she spoke. I have had such high hopes for you, she told Rapunzel, though the girl could not yet respond. But you gave me no choice but to board up the loft and keep you in it for your own safety. I should have learned, known better to then to take on a child of a peasant, such peasant stock. She turned and walked away out of the apartment, closing the only exit door behind her. Then she snapped her fingers at one of the men, ordering him to permanently board it up as well. Sundown approached. A few orange rays leaked through the single small wall window as Peter's funny screams finally ceased and Rapunzel's trance was beginning to wear off. Morning dawned and Chances went to check on Rapunzel. She stood on the window, slowly chanting, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Rapunzel appeared in the window and spat. Get away, I'll never wish to see you again. Have it your way then, but you'll get hungry. You'll not be, you'll be so, you will not be so obstinate. Perhaps I will turn later, if in, if in the mood, and see if your disposition is improved. Rapunzel placed the, the small dwelling, searching her way out, but there would be no escape. The only exit was well sealed, and one window was at least thirty foot above the ground. She had little uh, more than a pitcher of water, a basin, chamber pot, and would need a prison. By now she's almost having murderous thoughts about him and child deaths. She also knew that a woman could simply throw her into a trance and she was helpless against her. Helpless against her, but for the time for a young life. She experienced rage, and she was getting hungry. It only made her angrier. It was always, almost sundown. Again, the enchanters showed up. Hey, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Why must I do such an odd thing? Because I'm going to get, use it to climb up. You will break my neck if you do that. If, if Not if you wrap it around the window frame, Hawks Purse. And by now, Rapunzel was starving and saw the basket. Ram, Dame Ruffles' arm, at last, her long, thick rays tumbled from the window, and then this became Rapunzel's day-to-day existence. Dame Gruffle brought the food and water, and chambermaid would wait until she lowered her discards. On the day she finally decided she was losing her mind, she heard the pounding moves approaching. She dashed to the window, leaned out to see a well-dressed young man astride a fine steed, it definitely was not one of the farmhands mounted a carriage nag. 
Rapunzel bayed and called to him, having no idea he was the king's young son. He was a bit of a rogue and enjoyed riding unannounced through others' properties. He especially liked imitating the locals when bored. He even got a feel out of watching some of them fall on their knees before him. He halted to talk beneath the window, gazed at the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. Who are you and what are you doing up that window? Else. Who wishes to know? Oh, saucy one, he fell instantly and lost. The other witches of the kingdom groveled at his feet. It was so droll. Come here, he commanded. You still don't, don't, didn't answer my question, she retorted. He puffed. He said, she says, I am Prince, son of King Nefarious. Well, Prince, why not come down here? Yeah, perhaps you can come up here. Well, why can't you come down as I command? Had she not been so beautiful, he may have been angry, but he was not thinking with proper head. This is my prison, she said. What do you mean, prison? An entrancer's locked me up here. She's jealous because I am so beautiful. I wish to make, make, make me happy. In my prison is a bouquet of flowers of joy. Prince was brought with a technical challenge. Never heard of such a flower. But still he prepared to enter the entire kingdom, such the entire kingdom, high and low. But how shall I get them to you? Just do it, and when you shall find out, do not bring them before sundown, or the entrance will have me killed if he catches you. The prince returned, promised to return that eve. He had no idea the enchantress was the main supplier of the kingdom, that the girl on what the girl requested. He did not know if he grew the fields only even yards away on the other side of the wall. Or nor did she tell him Rapunzel. Nor or nor would she tell him. Rapunzel did not want the enchantress to catch him and find out she had spoken to him, nor put him up to the task. If he truly a prince, he would easily be able to find out fun for her. The prince burned his back horse back to the castle as fast as he would go and ordered his personal servants to scour the kingdom of the flowers. The hours called as he waited for a word. He paced his quarters, but as well at the last servant returned, clutching a hearty bouquet at sunset, he had a fresh mounted saddled and rode off to the enchanted domain, busy pushing his horse to the open, rare, open run. He was not, not first to notice the steam of petals in his wake, but there was nothing he could do, but do now. He'd bring them away anyway to prove he's made the effort. Surely he should, should consider the noble jester. A horse snorted in protest, a too vigorous yank on the reins. A full moon glinted off a bundle of braids, giving away her position at the windows. I'll come with your flowers. He thrust the petalous bulbs towards her, exactly as he, she wanted. What happened to the petals? She teased, even in approaching gloom. She could see his reddening face as he stammered. Ah, I was riding so fast that... Relax, Prince, I was only teasing. Yeah, oh, beautiful, she said, coldly tossing down a brazen invitation. Confused, Mar confusing Marcy's face. I'm in silly. It's only, it's only another of the evils she's done to me. The room I'm sealed is the tight of the tomb. I feel I should never be free again. Young and strong, he easily climbed the distance and pulled himself up to the steel. She begged him to unwind the braids from the sturdy hooks. He felt a bit foolish out of 
out of a handful of what was supposed to be flowers, but now looked more like pale little bald heads. Her palms were beaming at him. Uncoiling the last of her hair with the locks, she pulled it in, all in, and then grabbed his hand, pulling him towards the curtain. He must have been close to dawn when he departed the room, but she told him when he returned to stand below the window and only chant, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Let down your hair. He made it back to stable just minutes before sunrise, pretending to be pretended to be stable, and he couldn't sleep and went out early for a ride. He was not tired anyway. Elated and spent, already looked forward to being with her again. The prince was not able to slip away for several days. He did not want to repeat the embarrassment and gift of bald flowers, and hoped she could be happy to see him. He was after all the prince, standing over under the window, he softly called out, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. The prince listened for a moment and said for then more falsely, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Rapunzel finally appeared at the window, looking quite unlike her fresh, pretty self, eyes black and soot, underneath she was weaving in place. She looked like she might tumble out on the ground if not careful. What is wrong with you? I'm coming up there, Rapunzel. Let me down your hair at this instant, he hissed impatiently, but trying to keep his voice down. What did you bring me? she stirred. You know you have to let me up let me up to find out. The prince was by botanically challenged and never heard of such a flower. But he still appeared to search entire kingdom high and low. How I get how would I get them? But still, he's prepared to search the entire kingdom to get them. But how shall I get them to you? Just do when you shall find out. Do bring them before sundown, or Chantess will, will kill me if she catches you. Prince promised to return that eve. He had an idea that Chantess was the main supplier of the kingdom that I requested. He did not know that he grew in the fields only yards away on the other side of the wall. Nor did he tell him. Did she tell him? Rapunzel did not want the Trantus to catch him and find out she had spoken to him, nor put him on a task. He truly is a, is, a, is a prince. He should easily be able to find it. Some for the prince spurned his back of the halls back to the castle. Past he could get go and ordered his personal servants to scale their kingdom for flowers. The hours called as he waited for the word. He paced his quarters, but one at last one servant returned, clutching a hearty bouquet. As sunset she had fresh mounted a fresh mounted saddled, rode off the enchanters of the domain. Busy pushing his horse into the opera, overrun, he first noticed the steam vettles in his wake. There was nothing he could do now. He would bring them anyway to prove he made the effort. Surely she would consider the noble gesture. The horses snorted in protest at the too vigorous yank on the reins, a full moon glinted off. Rapunzel's rage giving away a position at the window. I'll come here with your flowers. I'll come here with your flowers. He thrust the petals, bells, up towards exactly what she wanted. 
Why haven't you the pebbles? She teased, evenly approaching gloom. You could see his running faces is stubborn. Oh, well, I was riding, Sith asked that. Relax, Prince. I was only teasing. It's beautiful, she said, cautiously, tossing down a brazen invitation. Confusion marked his face. God, I'm silly. It's just only another of the evil things she's done to me. I'm a room. I am sealed as tight as a tomb. I fear I shall never be free again. Young and strong, he was easy to climb the distance and pulled himself up over the still. As he began to unwind a brow each on the sturdy hooks, he felt a bit foolish out of holding out a handful of what was supposed to be flowers, but now looked like pale little bald heads. Rotunzel was beaming at him, recalling the last of the hair before the hooks. She pulled it in until pulled it all it all in, and then grabbed his hand, pulling him towards the curtain. It must have been close to dawn when he departed her room. She told him that when he returned to stand below the window and softly chant Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your hair down. Let down your hair. You made it you made it back to the stable just minutes before the sunrise. And pretended to be his stable hand, he couldn't sleep, and went out to ride early early for a ride. He was not to the ride anyway. Elated and spent, he was already looking forward to being with her again. Prince was not able to slip away for several days. He didn't want to repeat of embarrassing gift of all flowers. I hope she would pretty would just be happy to see him. He was after all the prince. Standing on the window, he's softly, he softly called out, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your head out, let down your hair. The prince listened for a moment, then more falsely, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let your, down your hair. Rapunzel finally appeared at the window, looking quite unlike her fresh, beautiful, pretty sight, her eyes black, a soot underneath. She was wearing, even in place. She looked like she might have tumbled out on the ground, if not careful. What is wrong with you? I'm coming up there, Rapunzel. Let down your hair this instant, he hissed and impatient, trying to keep his voice down. What did you bring me? she slurred. You have to let me go up to find out. She was the opposite one, he thought. She finally twinned the braids around the hooks and tossed them to him. When he clambered over the, the steel, the puzzle on one there and drew it in. Her eyes are still a half mass. Where are my flowers? What's wrong with you? he said yet again. I didn't bring any of the petals are all blown away while I rode. Her bloodshot eyes glowed angrily. You fool, I can't care about I don't care about the flattles. She didn't look so pretty anymore. She made her he, made him uncomfortable. She looked like a predatory cat. I am the prince, and I still st- I've not stood here and be called a fool. He turned around and leaned up to the windows, looking out. I demand you throw out your hair so I can leave. Statching by the up the wayward garden hoe, she then began. Then she'd been trying to use to hack her braids. She could hook them to the window. She and herself escaped. She screamed, "Down here to hell!" And changing at him, she jammed it nearly in the back of his neck. And you will not leave till I say you do. Prince could do no more than gurgle response. She caught. In the red haze of anger and disappointment, she wrapped one of the thick braids around his bloody throat and choked away whatever his life remained. The next morning, Dave Gothel appeared, who runs of daily rations to her surprise, and a grand horse sniffing him out. Barbatius, 8 by A. Drew. Prologue. There was a time in the deep past 
and gods and goddesses rule the earth. Under the watchful eyes of the supreme being, he servants the fates of comprise, of fr- comprise the three influential sisters, who are goddesses, to de- de- determine the destiny of all beings in keeping the supreme being all encompassing plan for the earth. Back in these days, life was simple but certainly harsher. In the region that was remote from the most civilizations, there was an autocratic kingdom in Antolia. It was enormous in expanse, but yet was not enough for the ruler. He wanted to own the land and stretch its horizon if possible beyond it. The more he owned, the more a feeling of dainty like status grew in him. He imagined people would not only bow to him, they would also pray for him, giving rise to the belief of his status among the gods. He thought he would welcome the gods, goddesses, mist, and dine with them, immensing, immersing himself amongst the powerful entities. What he didn't know was the great Sibi, the goddess of, mother goddess of Antolio, Alia, the healer, protector of these who suffered during the war, challenged times along with her constant companion called Lion, monitored his behaviour closely. She didn't prove how the ruler had become so brutal, daring to try and raise his status to dainty level. And surprising, she was not the only one who was offended. The supreme being was outraged at the way a man tortured and killed the innocents and hindered his progress. Then he came in the region he didn't have yet evaded was the one that neighbourhood in his own, primarily because they kept a low profile showed no interest in having any involvement in his own role. Along the way, the dissentant ruler thought others might think he was weak, too afraid of a ruler of the Roman kingdom, so he set the privilege them wrong. At least that was what he thought he should do. His pure thoughts as a conquest. He raided the city, burning down the entire palace, with no mercy being bestowed upon its occupants. A dismal day, so early, Suddenly wept as he observed the atrocities being conducted in the pe- once peaceful kingdom, lying roared with a mix of grief and, and extreme terror, anger, that he also watched with Sibu, the terror brought upon the friendly inhabitants of the Tokerity. She rose from the ground in a gentle mist and hovered among the dead, her chin quivering and tears singingly. Rolling down the cheeks, the thunder of rain that came be heard for miles round showed it broke the supreme being's heart too. It was not a way to interfere, for the man was in charge of his own destiny until the very last day, but not this time. A face known as Cleto, Lacarius, and Avrorus whispered in Stobler's ears as requested by the supreme being, Enough is enough. Silberly watched innocent souls departing from earth and helped them to find peace in their journey was rescuing the few surviving injured people. When she satisfied all the proper actions had been taken on behalf of the injured and the dead, she returned to the city and raised her wooden staff. Slowly at first she stopped it on the ground at once. A sound made made was nothing less than a premature rumble evaporated through the king region. All the birds flew away in a rush. A sudden hush descended upon the creatures of the ground. In fear growing in their hearts, they quickly scampered away. The last ramble gradually subsided, and followed by a total silence. After which Shabili stomped her staff on the ground for the second time. The rocks deep in the earth even started to rumble, followed by an immense 
earthquake. The earthquake, the walls of the city immediately began to crumble. The deep resonance of the quake swamped the screams of those who brutally murdered the innocents. When she hit her staff for the third and final time, a deep gurgling and rumbling sound grew even larger, louder, and ground violently tore apart, setting off a volcanic eruption right underneath the mighty kingdom. The ruler's army panicked and tried to leave the city below, above his city, but it was to no avail. The ruler was rueful. He had been tempted to conquer his smaller neighbour, but it was too late for regrets. Several smooths of anger through the volcano had been quietly bubbling so deep beneath the land that no one knew it existed. She vaporised and burnt everything in the city, along with the ruler of his army, while she rest raised around, which was to be higher than the rest of its surrounds. For days the kingdom had been glowing and hot lava showing, ensuring that all who lived near the city would be un able to come any closer. Volcano formed a series of broad ridges and pinnacles here where the inhabitants had once been. Once everything had eventually cooled down, it looked remarkably different. It was a land that was now higher than it had ever been before, with a cold lava now forming some massive, tough rocks. The rock-filled area was dark, imitating yet beautiful. The pillars and large formations that Shaped by the elements that are under control civilly, the survivors walked relentlessly to establish themselves. This time, with its tribe, they scraped and chiseled the foundations, turning them into ground dwelling houses, and they slowly became a very tight and selective unit community. For centuries, they retreated underground to protect themselves whenever they heard unfamiliar housemen shouts and tremendous. Thunderous hoofbeats on on their beasts of their beasts on their be of their beasts. Turning would make sure they would never again come to any harm. That's that was not all. She bestowed a power upon them to transform for weeks for the ability to soar through the sky, everywhere under any threat. It took many centuries for the slowly started surfacing, building a new life above the ground, while some still chose to live underground. Baracus was one of those who chose to emerge from the underground. He created for himself a humble but homely two-bedroom house in a small cave. The Stories of the Nice One Poems, short stories and illustrations from the paranormal fictional novel The Nice One by Joshua Chiani Perry Illustrated by Judah Claxton. The Nice One Project Reality Redefined. The history of this world begins in the same players, but the world story has changed. In Genesis, Cain, envy, envious of his brother's love, of his own, uh, his Lord's love of his brother Abel, offering over his own, plants the seed of committing the first murder in mind. He spies Abel in the field, sharpening the meadow evil tool for shearing. 
Cain grabs a sharp harvesting tool and creeps upon Abel. Right as he's about to strike Abel down in the cold blood, he steps on the twig, snapping it in half. Surprised, Abel rolls around, accidentally driving the shearing tool right into Cain's heart. First murder is now an accident, and the repercussions directly change the course of humanity. The nice one opens in the year 2000 in the Brentford Stratford Street section in Brooklyn, New York City. Bedstay is a large and developed urban centre, the apex of developable explosion. Spectators, forecasters, been making bids for the past several years, develop housing complexes and new businesses, and rush to plant their roots in an area that had been neglected and hard, nearly abandoned just a mere decade ago. Conflict had erupted all around the globe. Chris Sinekinson is high and corrupt, his corruption is ramp, and such discontent is bred a response for a uh, for response to ARC. On its face, the ARC is a multi-ethical organisation for cultural entities whose private investments hold many sway in the politics of the world. Their ethos, ignorance, and brought chaos to the world, and only through older and disciplined can humanity put itself, itself back on 